0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, ZipRecruiter, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible.
1: Tonight we're sitting down with an author and expert on cryptozoology. He's also a musician, actor, and voiceover artist. In fact, those of you who've watched Seth Breedlove's Small Town Monster series of cryptid documentaries will recognize his voice immediately. His name is Lyle Blackburn. We've almost crossed paths with Lyle many times and are big fans of his books, The Beast of Boggy Creek, and Scott's personal favorite, Lizard Man. He also recently published Momo, The Strange Case of the Missouri Monster. As a man who's been in the field for a long time, we wanted to ask him some questions about the investigations he's undertaken and what he's uncovered along the way. We're fortunate to have him on our show, as he's also been a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM and can be seen in a multitude of TV shows on Animal Planet, Destination America, Discovery Science and a and He was a consulting producer and special episode host of one of our favorite series, Monsters and Mysteries in America. He's also a successful musician and his band Ghoultown has released eight albums and has fans around the world. He has even written a theme song for Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. But tonight, he's here with us. And of course, we're going to ask him the questions you'd expect us to So settle in and get ready to meet Lyle Blackburn.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott
1: Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. When I was sitting in the car, I saw him from the neck down. He was outside the driver's side window after about two yards, he jumped on the roof. I saw hands, rough-looking black fingernailed hands, sticking down from the windshield. Chris Davis's account of his encounter with a Lizard Man from Lyle Blackburn's book by the same name. Join us tonight for a fascinating talk with Lyle Blackburn. And we're back for Did You Suddenly Take Up Golf? Uh, no, four is
2: the oh. number of colors of our mugs that we have in stock. Right now. Uh-huh. This is a rare occurrence to have them all there. Because, you know, sometimes you order and the supplier's out of stock or whatever. But all four colors are in there.
1: Yeah, I can't remember in recent memory when we did have a full stock yeah. of everything. So I get it. The lime green is in there. The orange, Yes, right?
2: the dark blue and black, which mm. look similar on the website, but in person have quite a different quality to them.
1: Excellent.
2: By the way, if you haven't done it already, check out the new podcast app, Himalaya. It's cross-platform and... And free, and it works better than certain other podcast players that shall remain unnamed.
1: Yes, it does. And it has multi-speed playback, so you can turn the Patterson-Gimlin film series from six hours, or whatever it ended up being, down to three hours, or whatever that would wind up shortening up to about uh, double speed. Yeah, well, you know what? I can't pull off double speed. I, I listen to most shows at like
2: 1.5, 1.75 speed, though, and I can I can still follow along.
1: Yeah, well, with us, it's almost mandatory, to because you don't have... <laughs> Nobody you want to gain that that time back in your life, yes. Well, anyway, download Himalaya, and once you get it installed, give Astonishing Legends a follow, and you'll be updated every time we post a new show. We've found that it's one of the quickest apps to update when we publish a new app to the feed. All right, let's get to our interview with Lyle Blackburn. All right, so we are on with Lyle Blackburn.
2: Those of you who've been following us for a while may recognize his name. In the past, we've talked a lot about Small Town Monsters films and Seth Breedlove, and his projects, and Lyle has actually narrated a fair amount of them. Lyle, welcome to Astonishing Legends.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: It's great to have you on, and uh, boy, do we have a lot of questions for you. You are a published author as well. How many books do you have out now? Five. And uh, what topics are those on?
0: Those are cryptozoology topics, you know, uh, undocumented, unproven monster cases, you know, a lot, a lot like the films where small towns have been turned upside down with media frenzy based on sightings of some unknown hairy creature or some scary, uh, you know, cryptid. How did
2: you get into this business of cryptids? What was the first thing that drew you into it?
0: Well, you know, one doesn't dream when they're a child that they could make any sort of business out of the monster business, I suppose. (laughs) Very few anyway. (laughs) So I just sort of got into it by my own fascination for the subject, I guess. When I was early, very early age, I was attracted to horror films and I loved everything spooky and scary. And within short order, I saw the Patterson, Gimlin, Bigfoot film. I saw shows like In Search Of and whatever ghost documentaries and things and UFO things when I was a kid. And that always really scared me because I knew that Frankenstein was made of a mask and and makeup, but looking at some sort of a possible Ape in the woods, you know, just scared me because I grew up hunting with my father. We were hunters and, you know, I just thought, man, if I saw something like that, but I I'm don't think I'm, I'm safe. I live in Texas. You know, Bigfoot lives in the Pacific Northwest. The Loch Ness <laughs> Monster is overseas, wherever that is in Scotland. And then I saw a movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek which just really drove it home for me because that was a uh, sort of a docudrama horror film based on sightings of this hairy bigfoot-like creature in southern arkansas which was only about three hours from where i lived so that kind of cemented my fascination for cryptids and sort of the scary aspect and the whole phenomenon of people seeing monsters in the modern age and fast forward many years i was a musician most of my life and and i'd sit in the tour bus and read bigfoot books and everything. And then I, I just I uh, was also a writer and written for several magazines. And then I was working for Rue Morgue, the horror magazine. And I thought, man, I want to write, write a book. And I thought, what is my favorite subject in the world? I thought, The Legend of Boggy Creek. What was really true about that? And so I set out and wrote a book called The Beast of Boggy Creek, which came out. It was very successful. It was a fast-selling book. And suddenly I was like, okay, this is good. And I just Kind of kept it up and thought, well, let's write more books. This seems cool, and it just went from there.
2: And then, uh, I guess after a while, sooner or later, you cross paths with Seth and wound up being in and narrating some of his films.
0: Yeah, uh, we met at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference some years ago, and at that point, he hadn't started the the film company, and he was talking to me about our mutual fascination for small town monster cases. And at that point, he was talking about wanting to do a book and that sort of thing, and then you know, he decided, eventually decided to, to do it as a film and, and that was Minerva Monster. And I saw that and I thought, wow, this is pretty good, you know, for what he's doing. And we already had a friendship and sort of a mutual love of these stories. And then by his third film, he wanted to do the ultimate small town monster case, which is the Boggy Creek Monster, the the legend of Boggy Creek. So that got me involved because I'd already done the research and so forth. So I was by virtue of that, I ended up narrating it and was in the film and it worked so well and people responded to it and we, we just worked well together. So then I just kept that up and then the next film, Mothman a Point Pleasant, I narrated that and co-wrote the script and then that gave me a way to sort of branch out with what I'm offering, not just in the books, but some film work, but having Seth be the captain of that ship, so it just worked well.
2: Yeah, that's great. I got to tell you I'm I'm geeking out a little bit just listening to your voice. It's taking me back to, you know, cuz we watched all of Seth's films pretty much in a row several months ago. Right.
1: Well, the first one we saw, we were getting to the Kent paranormal weekend, March of uh, 2017 or 2018, 2017. And that was seven, would have been 17, I think. Uh so we we rushed there and we just made the theater in time to sit down and so, and we had already covered the Mothman story for ourselves, and we thought, "Wow, this is great documentation. Very well laid out, great narration." So we were instantly hooked with that, and and we met Seth there in the lobby. <laughs> Just started up a conversation and got to know each other. And but yeah, we binged his films and and had him on. And it's a great little community here. Why do you think the Legend of Boggy Creek is the ultimate small town horror monster story?
0: Well, I think because. Of the movie. The movie was such a big deal in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and it was the ultimate uh, independent thing. It's it's what Seth does in a way, but was done, you know, almost 50 years earlier in which Charles Pierce took his own life in his hand and borrowed some money and a camera and went down there to this little town of Falk, Arkansas and interviewed people who actually had seen, reportedly seen this creature and the film went on to be such a big hit in the drive-in, such a big hit in the movie theater and later on television, that it made millions and millions of dollars. I mean, literally yeah. it was made for 160000 and made like at least $25 million. And because of that, I've come to realize, especially after I wrote the book, that so many people who are in this field or who have especially of of a certain age, all cite that movie as one of the influences. So it was something that sort of all Bigfoot researchers were into. And Falk is, is a really, really small town. I mean, it was like a town of 500 people, which was then associated with a movie that made millions of dollars. And so, you know, it doesn't get any bigger than that. You know, I've done, we've done other things like Momo, you know, or whatever, but Momo didn't have a giant film behind it I think in many ways, the Boggy Creek Monster is just it comes from almost the swampy lands of southern Arkansas and, it, and transcends that to worldwide fame. Literally, people you know, email me from the UK or whatever and say, oh, I saw that film when I was a kid. So it's very famous.
2: You guys are working on uh, a Momo project now, right, with Small Town Monsters?
0: Yes, this is sort of the year of Momo because uh, my latest book, Momo, The Strange Case of the Missouri Monster, came out in March, and uh, we were springboarding these projects together in a way which follows up with uh, the film Momo, the Missouri Monster, which will be the title of the Small Town Monsters films, which is going to come out in October, and we just shot that a few weeks ago, actually, up in the little town of Louisiana, Missouri, where it all took place. So yeah that's been another project where I kind of was able to do some of the research and then collaborate with Seth and then Seth brings in his perspective and other people so now people can get the book and get the film all in the same year. How popular is Momo in the in the big picture of the cryptid world? Fairly popular. I mean because like if you know you see these maps that they sell that Cryptids across the U.S. and they show a cryptid from every state. I mean, Momo is always on there. You you know, Missouri Mm -hmm. is represented by Momo. And in terms of Bigfoot, you know, people who are in that, enthusiasts of of that field are usually familiar with Momo. Like if a lot of people say, oh, yeah, so, you know, my friend saw a Momo in missouri well they're saying they saw bigfoot and that's just the regional term so uh-huh. you know i mean it's famous in terms of that but not not something like mothman there's there's a few of those cryptids like that just transcend fame i mean mothman you know a lot of people are going to know about it and it's almost like there's a few really famous ones and then there's all the ones that dwell there if you're into cryptozoology and stuff and you would know about momo but not the average person you know because Again, it's an old case, and that was one from the early 70s as well, kind of in the golden era of cryptids. So it has a fame, but it's mostly among those that are focused on those subjects, you know. It's its
1: own type of creature, really. I think a lot of people, you know, what you're getting at is that Bigfoot, yeah, he's universally known now as an ape-like bipedal creature, very close to humans even having some human traits but really more ape-like and when you read up on Momo I think what's so interesting about it is that it doesn't really fit that mold And, and it seems to be kind of regional and you know something of the southern midwest and the south And that, you know, when I was reading the description of the large pumpkin shaped head and long black matted hair that covered its eyes most of the time and long black hair that covered its whole body, it sounded to me a little more human than Bigfoot. Is that something that kind of differentiates or is it really
0: a different type of Bigfoot? I think that's what people would want to know. Well, yeah, it certainly has its own personality. And that's one reason I like it. There's sort of the ubiquitous Bigfoot that's you know spread around through a large area. And then you have more regional cases or legends or whatever that the creature has some personality. In the case of Momo, it was described as being upright, stood upright, was covered in hair, it was maybe six or seven feet tall, which you know it sounds like a Bigfoot, but mm-hmm. it was described as having a pumpkin-sized head and it also had hair that hung down over its face. A couple of witnesses said it looked like it was carrying a, a dead dog, which kind of gave it a little sinister aspect so that therein it gives it that personality and also creates a question. OK, is this thing a Bigfoot or is it related to Bigfoot or is something completely different and just by virtue of it being called Momo, which is short for the abbreviation for Missouri, which is M-O and then Monster, so M O M O. you know, the newspaper gives it a name, like you'd give a serial killer a name or whatever. Mm-hmm, right, right. That gives it some vibe of its own, you know, regional flavor. So personally, it's hard to reconcile because people do report Bigfoot sightings in Missouri, and there's a long history of it, but they don't always coincide with that same description of the, the hair-covered face and all that. So it's hard to say, was this some sort of individual creature that was unique within the Bigfoot species or was it a hoax? You know, was it a suit? Um, And then on top of that, you had other weird phenomenon going in and out of there because people reported seeing strange lights in the sky and even like what they believe were UFOs. So then people proposed that, well, Momo could have been an extraterrestrial. So it's a weird case because you have all these phenomenons playing in together with this unique creature, which, like any of them, we ultimately can't prove one way or another, but it's certainly a a very cool story and a unique kind of creature. Hello, everyone. I'm Sheila from Ashland, Kentucky, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
2: Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the primary, like, instigating Momo sighting was?
0: Yeah, the the first thing that became public was in July of 1972, and on July 11th, in the small town of Louisiana, Missouri. And let me tell you, writing a book where the town is called <laughs> yeah. Louisiana is not easy but <laughs> so that the town is located in the far eastern portion of Missouri right literally right on the Mississippi River i mean this is like tom sawyer huckleberry finn you know environment and so these people's house backed up to a wooded area called Marzoff Hill it's this big hill that you know in, in those rolling hills up there there's a lot of hills and bluffs and pastures with forests and waterways that kind of intermingle and these two kids terry and wally harrison who were very you know elementary school age kids were playing in their backyard there and they looked up and saw this thing standing there and it was they said it was covered in hair was standing upright and they, you know, I said the big head and the hair in its face. And um, Terry said, he thought it was holding a dead dog and he could see blood splattered on its fur. And of course they just freaked and ran towards the house screaming. And the, their older sister, Doris, who was about 15 at the time was standing in the bathroom. and could see right out the window and she saw it as well. It was just standing out there at the edge of the woods. And of course she gets her brothers in there and immediately calls the parents and uh, the father, you know, responded and came home from work early. And, you know, but of course, by the time he got there, whatever it was, had disappeared back into the woods. But he was quite certain that, you know, his kids had seen something and it was something unusual and very scary. And that very quickly made the newspapers and was followed by. You know, once it's made public, then other people say, oh, yeah, you know, we heard this really creepy howling sound coming from the woods on the same night that the Harrison kids saw it. And then within a few days, people saw weird lights in the sky. There was other strange noises, you know, other sightings that occurred within that. So it very quickly blew up to this big story that was making eventually made international headlines, but it was making local news and then made uh, regional newspapers, and then got picked up by the Associated Press. That was where it started, and that was July of 1972. And then, as these cases go, there were sightings going forward, and then people realized that there had been sightings previously that just hadn't been in the news. Mm. It seems like that happens a lot.
2: I mean, your primary focus is cryptids.
0: Right, yeah. For the books and the research, yeah, primarily just all that.
2: You're definitely the expert there, certainly compared to us in terms of that. But one of the things that I think, you know, we just did a a six-part series on the Patterson Gimlin film. Just Just
1: briefly touched on it,
2: (laughs) very briefly. Just the film. Yeah, Yeah, we went super deep on it. There was a lot of interesting things that we uncovered in the course of that. And one of them is, and it struck a chord with me what you just said about Momo, and Also, um, having read your book about the lizard man, you're not hearing a lot until one story goes big, and then it turns out a lot more people have something to say, and they weren't saying it because either because they're worried about what people will think about them, are they crazy, or they didn't feel like it was okay to talk about it. And so it seems like that happens a lot, because it makes me wonder in a lot of these cases, especially with small town monsters and cryptids and whatever else, is that How much is really going on that you don't hear about in the world at large? I mean, have you found in your research that once you start investigating these things, because I know you go to these places and uh, when you're writing your books and you do your research, does it seem like a lot of things unfold once you start talking to people that isn't out there in the public, for lack of a better description?
0: Absolutely. I think the way that these things have become famous is just by pure chance. Like, it just happened to get into the newspaper. Nobody really intends to be in the limelight for seeing some thing that most people say wouldn't exist or that they're going to laugh about. So, yeah, there could have been sightings happening, and if that person just simply didn't tell the news and didn't tell very many people, then it just wasn't on the record. But once something does become public, then it seems a little more, not only a little more acceptable say, well, you know, I saw something too, but people have a tendency to want to say, Oh, I did see that. I didn't want to say anything, but don't think those kids are crazy because, you know, I saw whatever. So I think it's definitely a phenomenon that there's a little bit of luck involved as to how the story leaks out, but there's, I'd say in every case, you know, boots on the ground, you go to this town and start talking to the right people, you'll find there were sightings that people just kept tight-lipped about, and that sort of corroborates to me that something was going on, because those original people weren't looking for publicity, they weren't making it up, and then the people who later saw it didn't even know that other people had seen it, and that was Especially in the case of Momo, because one year prior, in July of 1971, there were a couple of girls, uh, women, traveling south towards St. Louis. And just north of this little town, Louisiana, they stopped for a picnic at this scenic turnout. And while they were eating their lunch, they smelled this really rank odor and all of a sudden looked up and saw this ape-like hairy creature standing at the edge of the woods. And it started kind of walking towards them and they were so scared. They just got up and ran and got in into their vehicle and locked it. And this thing approached the vehicle because they realized they had left their keys sitting on the picnic table.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this one really reads like a a real (laughs) horror movie. You know, (laughs) there's there's your purse with the keys in it over on the picnic table. And but what I love about this sighting, and I think it was as Joan Mills and Mary Ryan. He came up real
0: right up to the window. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is daylight, and this is one thing that really makes the case unexplainable because, first, you know, this happened a year before it got public, a year before the Harrisons said they had seen something, and they were so freaked out by this that they reported it to the state patrol or state police when they got back to St. Louis. And people, you know, of course, in any of these cases, like, oh, it was a hoax, you know, my cousin has a a suit and he was in the <laughs> Yeah. We well, certainly heard that a bit. Yeah. You always hear that. But I'm like, dude, you can't be in full daylight standing right outside the car window and the these ladies not realize it's some hokey looking suit. Because, you know, let's face it, if somebody in nineteen seventy-one, some kids made a suit, it is not going to be very good. Right. Not yeah. convincing. I mean, we're not talking about a Hollywood caliber suit. So You know, if they thought it was a real creature at that close range, it's hard to explain that as a hoax. So that's significant. And and one that just like in all these cases where you go, well, that sort of corroborates what the Harrison kids saw. And it's very definitive. I mean, a lot of people see it makes the news and then somebody sees a shadow in the woods and say, oh, my God, I saw Momo. Well, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But it's hard to argue with these two ladies. So which obviously that scenario makes for great film. So trust me, that's going to be an awesome piece of, of our movie. Yeah, wow. I, can't I can't wait to see, see
1: that. That and the description that he, he ate one of their sandwiches in one gulp, just yes. just took one bite and it was gone. Uh, but the other thing I was thinking about, if you're going to fake this, say you are some kids or the local pranksters, you also have to fake something that is reported, I think in almost every sighting, is a really horrible stench that you're going to have to produce along with the sighting, because that's described in, I think, most, all these cases, right?
0: Yeah, a lot of times associated with Southern Bigfoot cases. um, Obviously, the skunk ape got its name for this rank odor it was said to have. So, yeah, Momo as well, you know, multiple witnesses described it as having a terrible odor. So, if you're doing a hoax, you know, and they said it was worse than like a skunk. So, they would have had to douse themselves in whatever you know that's just that's not easy to get off I mean that's a going a long way to make a hoax yeah that
1: that was my point is that it's a nice touch as we say right here if you're going to uh fake something just to get people talking but you have to put up with that and produce it every time and that was the common thing when we were doing the Patterson Gimlin film coverage that was one thing that Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin noticed is that it had a real dank you know earthy kind of smell as it passed by that kind of hung in the air and maybe you can write that off as some kind of ape bo or something but that's always been described these southern creatures it's even more pungent the way it's described like a dead animal or rotting meat garbage that really horrible smell that kind of you know will stay there for a long time after they're gone
0: Right. You know, some of the things that are associated, the characteristics of these and something that's not just, you know, you don't just get the sighting, but you also get the smell. So it's, it's things that are, you know, coinciding at the same time to perhaps suggest that it's a real animal because, you know, the, a lot of people smell it, see it. And then the smell is gone, you know, Mm -hmm. so the smell moved. It was on them. The smell wasn't just something, you know, they didn't pull up to the picnic spot and smell something they didn't smell it until the creature was then visible. So it was obviously the smell was associated with that thing, that entity, whatever it was. Right. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about the Harrison event
1: here with the two kids and the the 15-year-old sister, there was enough going on, enough sightings being reported around that neighborhood that an actual posse formed. And what was the outcome of that? Because now you're talking about 30, 40 people getting their guns out and wanting to hunt this thing down or at least find some proof. What became of that?
0: Well, so when the Harrison's story got to the local police chief, you know, he hears of that and other people started calling in. And at first he's just thinking, you know, what the hell? As the calls come in and as it progressed, he was of the mind that something's going on here. This isn't just kids making up stories or, or whatever, you know, he wasn't necessarily convinced it was a monster or anything, but he was concerned about what it could be. And as well, the response to the whole thing was that within days, Marzoff Hill was just covered with people up there with guns, and you know, I'm gonna hunt that monster down, and that sort of thing. I mean, people were coming in from out of town. You had locals, and I mean, this was a huge concern. So then, the chief's name was Shelby Ward, and he said, you know, we've got to go up there ourselves and look into this. So he formed a search party, a posse of 20 men. And about a week after the Harrison sightings, they went up and combed Mars off hill to see what they could find. Unfortunately, they didn't find any, you know, they didn't find the creature or any evidence thereof. But, you know, it's a pretty tangled wooded area and a lot of ground. And 20 people tromping through there. I mean, any animal is just going to flee, you know, I mean, it's not going to stand there and pose for a picture. So, <laughs> right. you know, they didn't, they didn't find anything, but just the whole thing of them doing this is like something out of a movie. I mean, it's yeah. to think that he took it seriously enough to get all of his deputies, the fish and game guy and some other volunteers and like go up there and seriously look for Momo <laughs> that was... <laughs> You just can't make this stuff up. It's just, that's exactly what happened.
2: It's like uh, Peter Coyote is the man with the keys in E.T. when they first go into the woods there.
1: (laughs) It wasn't just this creature, though. I think what got a lot of people whipped up into a frenzy was that they were seeing, as you mentioned, this other strange phenomena in conjunction with this sighting. and Strange lights in the sky, colored lights, disembodied voices. And what this reminds us, of course, is something like Skinwalker Ranch. And the idea is that there's some kind of tear in the fabric of our reality and it's letting all this weird stuff in. What other stuff around there? And can you describe some of the other strange phenomenon and if it was taking place in other sightings and other cases around that
0: area? Yeah, there was certainly a lot to this. Yeah, that it's kind of reminiscent of of those you know, Skinwalker Ranch and what have you. So three days after the Harrison kids had seen Momo, they were having a prayer meeting at the Harrison's residence, which they did like every Wednesday or something. After the meeting, there was about a dozen people standing out, just kind of talking in the yard. And they looked up to see these, what they described as balls of light, moving from like east to west over the trees they went down in the vicinity of a nearby school, as, as far as they could tell. And so, the obviously, these lights looked really out of place, really bizarre. And within a short time, they heard this loud growling sound, something that sounded like a growl, uh, which was also accompanied by this metal clanging type of sound. And it was getting louder and louder and louder. It was so loud that Miss Harrison could hear it inside the house and they had a bunch of kids and at some point this is you know she's already freaked out because the you know three of her kids had seen a monster so now she hear they hear this boom boom some kind of growling and stuff she comes running out with all the kids and says tells her husband Edgar let's get out of here just get me out of here so they all jump in the car and start driving down the road which they live on a dead end street. So they're only one way out. And as they're going, there's a mob of 30 some odd people coming towards it who had also heard the weird noises and the lights and all that. And, you know they're coming at them, and the Harrisons are fleeing. and Miss Harrison I, leans out the window and says something to a, the effect like they're coming or they're here or something. <laughs> yeah, and everybody just scatters. I mean, <laughs> good lord, yeah, totally like a movie. And yeah, so that was some of it. And then um, later on, as some of the individuals were searching in the woods, including Edgar Harrison, the father, who I, I believe was trying to prove what is kids had seen because you know you're going to get you get a lot of people naysayers and Mm -hmm. and people making fun of them and all that so he was like my kids saw something and i'm going to find out what it was so he was always up on mars off hill looking around and you know found residual footprints and hair samples and and in the process of doing that some of the searchers heard this voice like a weird voice that says get out of the woods or something and and it was in a place where they thought it came from this clump of trees and they go to the clump of trees and there's just nobody there. Wow! And so, you know, they're really starting to get freaked out now. And, and that was you know, some other cases where people heard like weird voices in the woods and then, Oh, towards uh, the latter part of that July, several people saw more strange lights in the sky, which this in this case looked more like, Things that were moving like UFOs and sort of hovering above the tree. So, those were some of the other things. And those certainly kind of reflect other cases that had occurred in the same kind of time period in Illinois and also in Pennsylvania. Um, Researcher Stan Gordon has written a book about some of the phenomenon going on in Pennsylvania. And it's very similar where you have sightings of UFOs in the sky and you also have coincidental sightings of. Bigfoot-like creatures running around in the woods, and so they're like these little pockets of weirdness that just pop up, and they're they're oftentimes fast or brief or last for you know several weeks, and then then it's gone. But hard to explain, but certainly something to it because numerous people reported sightings and voices and and what have you.
2: It's interesting because the more you look at this stuff and the more cases you review, the more common ground you see with all the things that you know that Keel uncovered when he was doing his work in Point Pleasant on the Mothman just these ancillary connections and I guess I don't know for you as somebody who's been immersed in this for a while what is your big picture take on the relationship possibly between cryptids and UFOs and unexplained lights and that sort of thing? What do you think is going on?
0: Well, all conjecture since I, you know have no more proof than anybody else. You know, the only thing I have on my side is just having years of looking into these cases and I'm, I'm no expert on UFOs because I you know I primarily interview people who say they saw a, some sort of a creature, but in terms of that, you know, I, I very rarely get anybody saying they saw a creature in conjunction with a UFO sighting. And in the catalogs of sightings, there are almost no cases where people actually saw a creature getting exiting any sort of a craft. So right. you do have the simultaneous phenomenon going on, but it's just pure speculation that they're connected. They seem like they would be because, you know, they're going on at the same time. But then again, you know, if I saw a raccoon on the same night as I saw a UFO, it's like, did the raccoon get off the <laughs> ship? Right. And, and was he carrying a small <laughs> gun? Like uh, Guardians like of the Galaxy? Rocket. Yeah. yeah, like Rocket. <laughs>
2: right. You
0: know, but for me personally, you know, I I, I tend to believe that, if these cryptids exist, they're more of a terrestrial nature. I mean, there's a lot to say about that as far as Bigfoot and the possibility therein. But for me, I, I tend to th- keep them separate and don't don't necessarily think that Bigfoot are pets of <laughs> aliens, <laughs> aliens and right. and all that stuff. And they're letting them out here to go to the bathroom or or they're letting them here to play or scare us. Or none of that adds up too much. It's like really far speculation. So. It's interesting to me, but I, I don't think that necessarily cryptids are aliens. You're not coming across eyewitnesses that are saying,
2: Oh, I saw yeah, I definitely saw that or I saw that in the seventies or whatever. Oh, in the next week I saw lights in the sky or that kind of thing. You're you're not coming across that kind of those kind of accounts.
0: Yeah, very rarely have any eyewitness reports where people say they've also seen a UFO in conjunction with a cryptid sighting. It's very rare. I mean, a couple of times somebody may have mentioned that. And in the the extreme cases where people have reported seeing multiple types of phenomenons, usually they're, you know, like one year I saw a UFO, the next year I saw something. And if those people are credible, I find that a lot of the people who have seen so much stuff to me come off as almost... You know the least credible mm. of all. They're just—it's like they're almost seeing too much stuff. <laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> right. not to say they're not, but <laughs> right, right, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seems to tip the balance there. Yeah, I, I always think those are the people's who reports that do not make it in my book. They're seeing everything. It's like, dude, if you, this is like winning the lottery, if you see <laughs> one Bigfoot, you'd be lucky to see another the rest of your life. Right, and it's not that easy to see. You know, if you talk about
1: Bigfoot and If it is an ape-like creature, it has very human-looking feet, with some distinctions, of course, very flat-footed. But it's a human-looking foot that should most likely be more ape-like in that, you know, opposable thumb. Now, the Momo creature, I I believe there were some prints that were found, but they were three-toed?
0: Yes, the prints that were found looked to be three-toed, and that's not uncommon in a few of these cases, even the, the boggy Creek monster, the most famous set of footprints that were found had three toes. Um, Mm. And a lot of people conjecture that Southern Sasquatch have three toes. This could be a joke about inbreeding. I don't know, but (laughs) uh, (laughs) yeah,
1: just, it's just something different about them. And, and uh, you know, that kind of reminds us of the, uh, the goblin type creatures in Hellyer and and, uh, in Kentucky in the caves but that's a different type of creature altogether in that they are more lizard-like or goblin-like in in a sense, and they have the famous three-toed prints. But even with Momo and some of these other creatures, and I was going to ask you to talk about uh, maybe Kohomo or the Blue Man, is that there's some variations with this, but it just seems like an odd print, an odd you know foot characteristic of something that seems more even ape human hybrid-like.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is difficult to rationalize the anatomy of three toes because... Right, right. First, all primates have five, human have five, and it makes the most sense with stability and balance, especially for something that's seven feet tall and, you know, weighs 400 pounds. It's hard on a narrow three-toed foot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people find tracks that aren't necessarily even connected to the creature. It's like, Oh, this Mm -hmm. looks like some weird track. Look, it's got three toes. This must be its track. It's not necessarily its track. In the case of Momo even, some people looked into various proposed physical evidence of it and had different opinions as to what it was. And, you know, you connect things with it, but they don't, it doesn't necessarily, again, prove that the thing had three toes. It's just that people found something that looked like a weird track. And then suddenly the thing has three toes and then it's off and running. But, yeah. On the flip side, it's not out of the question that it's something that, if it is a real creature, it would obviously be have a very small, Population base, um, and certainly things like deformities could occur, and and those often manifest themselves in the hands and feet, in right. digits, numbers of digits. That's the first place that if there is a situation of of kissing cousins, so to speak, that deformities are going to uh, you know happen. Or, I mean, these are barefooted creatures in dangerous places. They could have lost yeah. a couple of toes, right, and you can't right. ever really rule something out.
1: Well, do you think there's any kind of connection to the specific location, the land, like Marzoff Hill? Or another pattern that some researchers see is that these sightings occur where there may have been an, an ancient Native American settlement or there's some activity of an, of a past nature or there's something specifically special about that piece of land or the area. Do you find that there's any kind of connection there with the, uh, with the actual places these things are being found.
0: In some cases, they coincide with Native American mounds and things. But for the most part, it's just, I find that sightings of Bigfoot-like creatures occur in places that they seem the most logical. They're in heavily wooded areas. They're in areas where there's a lot of water, whether that's a swamp, a major river, or a bunch of creeks. Texas is a good example. People don't often associate Texas with Bigfoot and are surprised to learn that there are Bigfoot sightings in Texas. Mm People in Texas? What do you mean? A lot of people's mental vision of Texas is sort of, you know, the John Wayne movie or something that's more barren and sparse trees and ranches and all that. And certainly the state has that. And if you're in the far western portion, it begins to get to the desert area like New Mexico. But if you're in the eastern portion, It's the piney woods. It's so thick and such heavy woods and even swamps as you get over towards Louisiana, that's where all the Bigfoot sightings are. Mm. So I think if people were making all this stuff up, then they'd just be reporting them anywhere. Like, yeah, I've seen one over, you know, whatever in El Paso. Right. Although, well, there was one site. <laughs>
1: There's always one where you don't expect it. Always something to
0: blow the absoluteness of this bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Could you just talk briefly about some of these other strange creatures with funny names, like the Blue Man, and what are the wild ones, or
0: what's the case of the icy corpses? Anytime I write one of these books, you know, regional, obviously we're talking about Missouri here. And, you know, it's, you want to look back and see if there's been any kind of history of, of these kind of creatures sighted in the state. And there's a kind of an old legend from the Ozarks and the Ozarks is the heavily rocky remote area of Southern Missouri, where you've got the Ozark howler and you've also got the blue man and the blue man sort of fits this description of Bigfoot or as they used to call them wild men, kind of just some sort of a human-like thing covered in hair that lives in the woods and it'd be cited by, you know, the people who lived in the small towns around there or usually by hunters or hunting parties that would, you know, be in the Ozarks woods hunting. And so the Blue Man Legend is one that was quite prominent and it had a lot of, you know, newsprint coverage in the 1800s on up that, uh, you know, is is one of the really the prominent legends of Missouri. And then in just more in a general sense, people would talk about these things that they termed wild men. Even uh, Mark Twain, getting back to the Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn thing, Mark Twain even wrote things about wild men because it was a, something that was covered in the newspapers a lot in the 1800s of sightings. You read those sightings now and you would say, well, that sounds like a Bigfoot. But mm. the term Bigfoot wasn't, you know, around till the nineteen fifties. So they just called these feral ape like things wild men. So mm-hmm. you do have a history of that running up and down the Missouri River, up into Iowa and down into Missouri. Those are cool things because I, I love those legends that play into the whole weirdness of the state so that it's not like well this just one thing happened over the course of two weeks no no no. there's been like a long history of weird stuff going on all along whether it was you know the blue man stuff in the 1800s or whether it was momo in 1972 it's like it's just still going on so it almost suggests that perhaps there's something to this and the area where the mars off hill where momo was seen is is a place where there's plenty of water. There's a lot of woods up there, or there were at the time. There's a lot of farms which provide sustenance. So large, unknown wild creatures could easily find cover and find food and wander up and down that riverway and only be seen occasionally, I think.
1: Hi, I'm Chris. And you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show
2: This stuff is so fascinating to me and I it's interesting to me too how much research you've done. I guess I would I wanna change gears a little bit now and ask you a little bit about the Lizard Man book that you wrote, which I'm a big fan of. I actually read it in over the last three days. I was just now looking at your other titles. And I mean, you've got a fair amount of stuff out here. You know, you've got Momo, The Strange Case of the Missouri Monster, The Beast of Boggy Creek. You've got a, a book here on uh, Woodnox. Oh, you guys all wrote uh, David Weatherly, Lyle Blackburn, Nick Redfern. You guys are all in that one, I guess. You've been pretty busy. You've covered a lot of ground. You know, the Lizard Man book was so fascinating to me because it was different from a Sasquatch or Bigfoot sighting. And that was something that was intriguing to me. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about that initial initial sighting that Chris Davis had, and then maybe we could discuss that a little bit if you if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. The man case is one that's always fascinated me. And I think, again, it was like these others, like Momo. I'd read about it in other books and stuff over the years. And then it just so happened that it came into my radar and was something that worked as far as covering the story. The Lizardman case dates back to 1988. That's when it became public. And the most well-known and sensationalized encounter occurred in June of 1988, and in this case, a young man was in the area of Skateboard Swamp, which is located in South Carolina near a small town called Bishopville, and the Skateboard Swamp is a rugged, untamed portion of land uh, that runs there in Lee County, and he was had to drive basically through there there's one road that kind of cut through there near bishopville and he was driving home at 2 a.m at night in which he had the unfortunate circumstance of having a flat tire you know again it's like you can't make this.
1: <laughs> right this is this the start of another good horror movie yeah
0: this is not where you want to have a flat tire there's no one out there there's you know it's a long way to walk and it's spooky already so Uh, luckily he had a spare so he there's enough moonlight to where you know he could see well enough so he proceeds to change the tire and he does that he's putting the jack and the tire back in his trunk when he just glances up and he sees a figure coming toward him through some high fennel grass and stuff right there on this this area above the swamp channel and first he thinks it's a person which is scary enough that a person is coming at him out there and then The more he looked and as it got closer, he realized that it wasn't a person to him. It looked like something that was either brownish or green. It was, you know, upright. It was six or seven feet tall, anthropomorphic, which meant it had the shape of a human, but it had reptilian looking skin. And he said it had long fingers. It had like three fingers with long claws coming off those. And of course the kid just freaks and jumps in the car gets it started and whatever this thing was just came up and tried to grab him out of the car and he you know starts up and accelerates and the thing was you know trying to reach in there and he could see the claws and he's close and personal with this thing he finally gets off down the road and and loses it and it falls on the side of the road and gets up and is still running after the car and uh, he manages to zoom off and he gets to his house, you know, this is 2 a.m. in the morning, he gets out, leaves the car running, just bolts in the door, and he's freaked out and crying, and his dad's in there. And his dad's trying to make sense of all this. And ultimately, they didn't know what to do. They're like, what is this? What in the world did you see? And so they kept quiet for a couple of weeks, in which Just like in the Momo case, there was another incident in which somebody's car was damaged. It looked like it had been mauled by an animal of some sort. And that got in the newspaper and that got people talking about sightings of a creature that the locals called the lizard man. And once that became public, a couple of weeks later, Christopher Davis decided, he and his dad decided, maybe we should tell a sheriff about what happened to you down at Skateboard Swamp because maybe that has some connection here. So they show up at the sheriff's office and you know, Christopher Davis proceeds to tell the sheriff this story and drew a picture of what he had seen and the whole deal. And that became obviously big, big news. And so at that point, the summer of 1988 for Bishopville, South Carolina was all about the lizard man. I mean, there was unprecedented amounts of media coverage I mean, Dan Rather was down there in Skateboard Swamp broadcasting live. It was just a big deal. And so I wrote the book because I love this sort of almost like a modern creature from the Black Lagoon type thing. I mean, yeah. people literally seeing something I love. You know, it's one of my favorite movies. I'm right. And so I went went to Bishopville and, and you know, I hung out with the sheriff who investigated all this. So I got police records and all this stuff. So that's that's how I ended up writing that book.
2: I tell you, I love it. I love the approach. The fact that you went there, you also, uh, I guess you had your research partner, Cindy Lee. Do you still work with her?
0: Yeah, yeah. She, we, We've we done quite a bit of stuff together. So yeah, she's so she's, she's always game for yes. hunting monsters.
2: Great. So she's a regular cohort of yours. So, I mean, that's really amazing. So in getting down there and talking to the people, that's something that we try to do on our show too, is get to the, the human side of it. And also, I love how deep you dove on the local culture, because you have to take all that stuff into account, and all the possibilities of what may have happened. And here's what's interesting to me, and it's something that just occurred to me while you were describing the story, because in the book, when you're talking about Chris Davis... You mentioned the locals had this idea because he wasn't too far from Brother Elmore's butterbean shed, <laughs> which I guess Brother Elmore had been repeatedly having his air conditioners stolen. So supposedly he was laying in wait for people to try to get his air conditioners and he had hidden himself in burlap or something. And he came forward and said that he was the guy that attacked Chris, right? Some local people tried to say, well, that's really what happened with regard to this instigating case.
0: Right. Yeah. In this case, as all always, there's some rumors that somebody was behind a hoax. In this case, Elmore never said he never went on record and said he did it. It was just something that people third parties said, okay. yeah, he won. And and it supposedly, yeah, there was a butterbean shed where people were stealing the air conditioners and He had come out there and chased this kid or something, but there was also another guy that claimed that he was the lizard man, and he had come down there. He worked at a local Air Force base, and he came down there and had a mask and would just sit at Skateboard Swamp and wait for somebody to have a flat tire and came out. (laughs) He was the lizard man. You know what we call
2: that? We call that mystery solved. <laughs> we call, that's what we call that on our show. It's like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Well, and here's the thing. When you were just talking about how Chris had reported it to the sheriff, it occurred to me that, you know, in light of that story, and there were certain race implications there with what had happened between Chris and Elmore, if if anything, and maybe nothing, but just kind of how the town sort of crafted that story. The thing that's fascinating to me is if... Chris had been actually out there trying to steal an air conditioner, then why would he go to the sheriff later and say, I was out there? It doesn't make sense in terms of that, because then you're putting yourself in this location and in the middle of of that the other side of that story. But then the other part of that too is the whole thing with the Army Corps of Engineer guy, the colonel, who I believe you used a pseudonym for because he didn't want to come out with his real name. That was pretty amazing. His sighting stuck with me because it happened on my 19th birthday That's <laughs> wow. while I was uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, not too far away. And I didn't hear about this, which is crazy to me. And that was August. So that's only two months later. That's still 1988. And his story was the same kind of thing. But he wasn't he also the one who described the torso with the legs coming out of the side of it, kind of
0: like an alligator, as opposed
2: to a human torso with a waist?
0: I believe that guy said he thought it had a tail. And right. And that's one thing of debate and, and most of the time while people think of lizard man usually they kind of think of this a al- silly looking alligator type thing but that's not how people described it in 90 you know most of the witnesses didn't say they had a tail so right. that's the whole other thing it's like this if this elmore was the lizard man or even this other guy in a mask how does that account for all the other people who had seen it both before and after you there were sightings going back two years prior Right, you know, of whatever. It's like, man, that, that farmer was busy, and that just uh, no <laughs> right. that you can't no that adds up. It's like it just wasn't a concerted hoax. Now it's hard to explain why somebody said they thought it had a tail, and one person said it they didn't see a tail. But I mean, you got to realize it's a flash of an instance in which they seen it. It's a scary situation, and oftentimes. Eyewitness descriptions can be unreliable. We have to admit that. But I think they could distinguish between okay, it wasn't a bobcat or it wasn't a bear. It, it wasn't a human. It was something I can't identify. Now, whether it had green skin or brown skin, you know, that's hard to tell. But I think in general, the witnesses, the better witnesses that saw it, saw something that was just weird. And in some cases, you had like this Blithers family that saw something a couple of years later. There was like four of them in the car. And yeah. they also went to the police and wrote down what they saw within a few days. And I had access to these affidavits. Usually, you know, I'm interviewing somebody 20 years later.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> we can relate. <laughs> this is
0: something they wrote down. And the luckily Sheriff Truesdale had the wherewithal to follow this like a regular police case. He's like, Oh yeah, here's here's what the people saw. They wrote it down. I separated them all and made them write it down. And you read their descriptions, you go, dude, these people are not making this up. Yeah. They saw some.
2: And that's the crazy thing. I mean, that overall story is crazy, but then the additional stories that you uncovered when you were trying to get the bigger picture of all these other things that had happened in surrounding areas. Those were bizarre to me as anything because you had the, the fisherman that something got caught in his line and it came over and put its hand on the boat while it and was trying to get the hook out of its mouth and then swam into the bushes. <laughs> and it was wow. partially humanoid. You had the frogman under the bridge that had some kind of thing that was shooting blue sparks. What in the hell is going on down there?
0: Well, that, yeah, that, the, the Loveland frog thing is. Oh, that in was in Ohio.
2: Ohio. Yeah. That was in Ohio. Right, right, right. But it's another amphibious cryptid thing yeah just
0: to suffice to you know and i like to compare and contrast i mean such a weird case has anybody seen anything remotely like this in other parts of the u.s so then i kind of play in those others and go yeah there's been other sightings and it's just some weird weird stuff and i like those stories because they're unique they got personality it's the lizard man you know and some people like oh you know i don't think it's real i never heard of it it's like it doesn't matter dude it's a fascinating story how people in modern times were saying they saw this thing come out of the swamp the thing with a fish hook and all that stuff it's just weird and spooky and just the stories under themselves are fascinating whether or not we can prove these legends it doesn't matter it's the Phenomenon thereof, you know.
2: Yeah, because you also mentioned in the book the, uh, and I don't know if I'm saying this right. Is it Thetis Lake?
0: Yeah, Thetis Lake.
2: Where is that located?
0: That's in British Columbia. So that's was... in
2: British Columbia. So there, and there was so the, the repeated sightings of things coming in and out of the water there that seemed amphibious and humanoid, right?
0: Yeah, there was the Thetis Lake monster is kind of another second string player on the cryptid list, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. In, uh, in the hierarchy. But, you know, it's one of those that, some kids saw supposedly saw some kind of a reptilian thing come out of that lake. And then I was fortunate when I was doing my research, I always seem to find these other more recent cases that are weird and play into it. But there was a fisherman who was chased by something down there that kind of resembled that and more way more recently, like in the two thousands. And that was one of the scarier things that I have written up in yeah you 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 know and i'm sure if i went up there you could find even more it's just there's always more to the story than people realize and even the case like a lot of my books like like momo it's like in lizard man like wow i didn't know there was so much to the story well that's because somebody is writing a compilation of cryptid stories and if it wasn't Lauren Coleman, then the rest of them Googled Lauren Coleman or yes, referenced his right. books. Yes. And just writes a few paragraphs because that's that's all they looked into. But if you go to the town and you start looking into it and just you know, you, you know, you always find that there's more.
2: The same thing has happened to us. When you start looking, there's there's just so much more information than you can imagine. And invariably our listeners wind up suffering through. Multi-part series that that we thought were going to be one or two episodes, but it's, but like you, that's the part that intrigues us. And to that end, I actually had a question for you about what is kind of the, the limited empirical evidence in the Lizard Man story are these car attacks, and I was wondering if you had uncovered anything that might point to other animals attacking cars like that, because they, uh, for our listeners who haven't read your book, which I would encourage everybody to go get, because it's a great read, any of your books, they're all yep. great reads. They're very um, well written. I want yes. to say that
1: now is that they're very enjoyable, very well written and uh, have a journalistic feel, but are a lot of fun. And yeah. that's, that's why we read these things anyway, you know. Yeah, and lots
2: be- of, and, and lots of really good research and firsthand accounts and also a nice dry sense of humor sprinkled. I was laughing out loud at some of your remarks, which... Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, my were...
0: my my section called reptile dysfunction yes reptile <laughs> right. dysfunction i was like okay
2: nice but like what i'm
0: wondering is like
2: with these cars cuz i was trying to figure that out okay so what could that be i mean looking at the you know indigenous creatures in south carolina we have black bears they mostly crowd up in the mountains or down at the beach and the, the section where bishopville is is described as having a transient population but the thing that i even know from living in north carolina cuz i live there for years and years. The thing I know is that you don't really have to worry so much as a human about black bears. It's the brown and the grizzlies and the, you know, that you have to be afraid of. And they're primarily eating vegetation, but they do eat meat. But according to some of the information I looked at today, that's less than 20% of their diet. So I was trying to think, and, and you had talked about this just a little bit, but what if they were pursuing a small animal of some kind and it took refuge in the engine compartment of one of these vehicles? And the bear is just trying desperately to get to it. It just seems to me that it would give up and it wouldn't be so vindictive and also such a small part of its diet. Why would it do all this assault to these cars? None of that makes sense to me. So then I'm just trying to figure out if you discount the lizard man and say you throw that out, you know, the baby out with the bathwater from the really skeptic debunking point of view, what else could possibly be attacking these vehicles like that, that are these parked cars? and why
0: Uh, and i did look into that and so i'm not completely convinced that like you say that the car maulings are connected to the lizard man so if if that's the case then what could it be what i've learned is that wild animals are going to be much more reluctant to damage their teeth in the case of trying to bite through metal or whatever than would a domestic animal Okay. So that leaves the possibility that pit bulls or something along those lines damage the cars. Uh, right? Because whereas, like you say, if, if something runs up into that engine compartment to get away from a bear, a bear would paw and push at the car, but it is not going to bite at it. It is not dumb. And even coyotes and wolves are very, it's ingrained in them that their teeth are so important I mean, they may bite at the metal or something and quickly say, I'm not going to bite at this anymore because it's just not their instinct. They would give up, you know, after some amount of time or just, usually they would just sit down and wait, you know, till the thing comes out. Whereas pit bulls can be crazier, I guess, and are not going to have that instinct to protect their teeth. And I've had another, a guy with experience with these, kind of thing suggests that if something if an animal were to do that he thinks it would probably be something like a pit bull that was the best answer i could get and one of the cases out of three of them where there was car damage the third one they actually did some sort of dna test and it came back saying it was domesticated dogs so Mm.
2: oh canine so maybe it was like a band of of feral dogs or were something like that
0: could be I mean I didn't I could find no one that had reported seeing any wild hordes of pit bulls or anything like that but you know it could have been just a dog that was out and about so that to me is it's the best possibility and the most likely possibility of what those the car damage was yeah and that it was it was just purely weird and coincidental and coincidental for the fact that it kept happening every 10 years or whatever in Bishopville, but it really had nothing to do with the lizard man. That was just something that was like, again, you got all this weird stuff going on in one place and you would tended to connect the two.
2: Right. It was erroneously associated with it. But then on the flip side of that, because this is the other thing that I thought was interesting too, was you had discussed the, uh, the case of the crop duster, the pilot who lived in the area who had a runway on his property and he was, Taking off, he sees something cross out of the woods at the end of his runway and go across, and he described it as a grayish brown with a face like a monkey, and that also from the airplane, he couldn't tell if it was scaly or hairy, but he definitely saw something. And then the other thing that's interesting about that is that at that time, Elmore, who had, you know, maybe been accused of either being this creature in the initial sighting or whatever, was actually in that guy's front yard talking to someone else, which he could also see from his plane as he was taking off. My question to you, though, is that creature, whatever that pilot saw as he was taking off, was different in description from the lizard man encounters that both Chris Davis had and the Army Corps of Engineer colonel had. They were seeing something more specifically lizard-like or describing something like that, I guess. Do you think that... These things are getting conflated. Like you said, these ancillary events, it's dogs attacking the car and it's sort of coinciding with the lizard man sightings. So what's happening is people are hypersensitive and they're seeing things and they're conflating it with the lizard man. Or do you think that there's a possibility that, for example, near that swamp, there is a variety of creatures and they're seeing, and now that everybody's looking around and feeling okay about reporting them maybe they're reporting different things and they shouldn't be connected, but they're both equally strange and and encrypted like.
0: Yes. I, I think that could be the case because I'm quite confident that the crop duster, his name is Frank Mitchell.
2: Yes. Frank Mitchell.
0: He was one of the ones that I was able to actually go to his home and visit with him when I was out there and hang out with him and look at the runway. I'm pretty certain he saw what he said he saw and the fact that he doesn't describe it as something lizard-like, he just said, dude, this is what I, you know, this is what I, my impression of what I saw, you know, wasn't a human, but it also wasn't what I would think the lizard man would look like. That gives it, all also gives it some credibility. And in South Carolina, there are sightings of Bigfoot-like creatures, and there's a history of those in that general area. And some of the other witnesses also, said they thought it had hair and it was brown and it had hair. And in one of the, the Blithers family, they said, one of them said it looked like a Sasquatch. Yeah. So it's hard to say, yeah, that it could be that people saw a Bigfoot and then just because it's in lizard man country, it just gets, you know, sort of thrown into the lizard man case. Okay. It's all part of that region in that story, but yeah, I don't know that they were seeing the same creature or, it could be that, for example, Christopher Davis, the guy that had the flat tire. If he saw something coming at him like that, and the thing had come up out of the water, you know, it it could have been a little glossy, wet. Right. It could have there could be a Bigfoot that has a you know lost some hair, a skin condition. I mean, you know, we think of Bigfoots as sort of they got their nicely combed hair and they're <laughs> posing for the photo, but if they're living in the wild. They're going to be subject to not only the elements, if they're in a swamp, but to skin conditions. And, you know, you you see pictures of, you know, bear that have mange and they look weird, you know. And so who's to say that people didn't see something like that and just give it the name, the Lizard Man, because they thought it looked reptilian when actually it was just a wet algae covered Bigfoot or something. So there's all manner of uh, descriptions that just like you said, even though
1: we cover some of these topics and we're all over the place, as far as genre and and, uh, different uh, types of things we cover, when we started getting into looking at Bigfoot stories, then we started hearing, or I did, stories of some regular type Bigfoots that people claim, but some having long hair just off the top of their head and some reports of it being braided. And that was the like the latest weird thing i'd I'd heard is that some of these bigfoots had kind of like dreadlocks or some kind of braiding or farmers reporting that the mane or horse tails have been braided, something came and braided someone came and braided it, and, and you know who knows, and so that's another question we have is that you have some of these like the attacks on the car. That just seems more savage. That is more 50s horror movie, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Well,
2: yeah. There's a lot of confrontational
1: stuff happening too. It's like,
2: right. why is it always trying to get the person in the
1: car? Or Sometimes. You know? and then, well, I mean, yeah. It's... Right. And then sometimes you have the case of Momo where it just sounds more curious and it doesn't know that it's freaking people out so much or it really doesn't care. But just the gamut of all these types of responses and levels of human intelligence or seeming intelligence. And so Lyle was going to ask you like, which cases have you come across where there does seem to be maybe more intelligence with these creatures just by described behavior as opposed
2: to just a feral or wild. Yeah. Just right. Something tearing at your
0: clawing at your car, you know, I think in general, if something like Bigfoot does exist, they just logically have to have some higher level of intelligence Mm -hmm. over just, you know, a marauding beast because they would quickly be discovered because they would all be doing things that would put their survival in jeopardy. I think that the ones that you have people reporting attacks and all this stuff, I mean, those are exciting, but they're definitely more rare and the most sensational of these. And I think, you know, just like any wild animals or individuals, you could have some that are a little more apt to be aggressive than others not as a general type characteristic but just some individuals so i think that in most cases the creatures are intelligent enough to stay hidden to stay reclusive and that that's just for survival um and then the ones that are attacking people are just (laughs) like oh yeah there goes you know cousin butch again he's he's always attacking them humans or whatever right well it's just like with humans
1: you know most are uh you know behave themselves and there's a few that do crazy things. yeah they do crazy things i don't know if that's called a rogue bigfoot because that's usually not the case but they don't all behave exactly the same just like any other creature but you were talking earlier about uh some of the things like with tree knocking and i was wondering if that or, or some kind of simple communication if that has ever been found with some of these
0: creatures that uh, that people have reported seeing. There's conjecture that they communicate in some ways. And of course the so-called wood knocks of Bigfoot are whether they're communicating among each other or sending out warnings to us invading humans is unclear. And then there's been a few cases where, you know, people have recorded what they say are, you know, Bigfoot making, speech-like sounds but again that's you know i never get any reports where somebody goes yeah i was i saw a bigfoot and it was knocking on a tree it's always you hear the wood knocks people see the bigfoot but they don't see him doing it so again we're just making an assumption that those two things are connected i mean it is weird if you hear a big old knock in the woods and weather and things like that can cause trees to snap and break. And there's all kinds of weird noises in the woods. It's just depends on how you interpret those. If there are wood knocks, you know, certainly it it would make a certain amount of sense that these creatures would use that way to communicate if they don't have a language. And I think if they did, I think there would be a lot more reports of people hearing some weird voice in the woods. You know, that's so rare that I think I almost think that they don't They don't have a language beyond like howls and grunts and things that maybe a primate would do.
2: All right. So then uh, just a couple more questions here and we're going to let you go. But I always wonder this for, you know, for somebody like you yourself who's talking to so many people. Does anyone stand out to you as the most earnest eyewitness you've ever spoken to on? Is there any particular person you would point to and just be like – there's just absolutely no doubt in my mind that this person saw what they saw, or whatever they're saying has happened to them did did happen to them, or they believe it did.
0: Yes, yeah. There's there's one. I mean, there's several credible individuals, but there's one in particular where I will cite that is the one that I just simply can't explain, and I'm ninety nine point nine percent certain this this person is telling the truth. This was a witness in the Falk Monster or Boggy Creek case um that I came across when I was writing my first book, The Beast of Boggy Creek. And he had a sighting in around nineteen eighty-two there in Falk when he was fourteen. And when I was up there doing research, everybody kept saying, You gotta talk to Terry Sutton, man. You gotta talk you go, if anybody's telling the truth, it's that guy. His family's well respected. And so I was able to talk to him and basically they they live there in Falk near the Sulphur River and they have a pond on their property, they have a big old piece of property. And he has a, a pond. And one evening he was fishing back there on the pond, you know, quiet. And uh, he had heard what sounded like rustling in the leaves because it was in February. And uh, he thought maybe the neighbor's bull had gotten out or something, you know, he just didn't think too much of it, but he, he did hear some stuff. And then, just about the time he was about to give up. It was, you know, starting to get dusk. He hears the footsteps and he looks up on uh, the ridgeline, which is about 60 feet away from him. And he said, I saw this ape looking thing walking upright. The thing, it was about six foot tall, at least. Cause he's, he's about that tall. It was walking sort of hunched over, you know, the shoulders, the long arms covered in hair. And He said it it didn't look at him. He said he doesn't think it saw him because he's just sitting on that pond. He was quietly fishing. Unless the creature just turned its head, he wouldn't even see him. He said that thing walked up that ridge, walked down and disappeared beyond it. And I mean, he said it was 60 feet away. He said it wasn't a person in his suit. It wasn't a hunter. There was nobody that should, should be on our property. He heard it stop. And then he got out of the boat and made some noise. And then he said he heard whatever this thing was take off running and at that point he just fled for the house and his dad was there at the house and all this stuff and but you know people had told me talk to this guy so I did and I've gotten to know his family over the years his father his father and I are good friends every time I go to Falk almost I see him and uh, Terry had never come forward in public with his story he's a very He's a guy that just doesn't want attention over it. Your average kind of guy. He's very, he's a successful person. You know, he has a family and a guy who, you know, I met and spoke to several times. And he was in, in, as a matter of fact, he was in our uh, Small Town Monsters film later on. But I'm telling you, I put my money on this guy. He saw it. He saw it up close. And he said, man, I, I never thought much about the Falk Monster. But he said, as I'm seeing that, he's like, my God, there it is. I never thought it could be real. So I don't know how to explain that. I can tell you he's not making it up. His family's not making it up. The fact that he has been reluctant to tell the story, but was willing to just because he saw the value in my research and to tell the story that he, he did. So that for me is one that I can't ever get out of my mind.
2: Well and that's the perfect lead into my last question really is how has your big picture philosophy or your personal belief system changed between when you first started really looking into this stuff and and where you're at now today
0: well i think that you know i'm always refining my view of this as i go because the more people you interview the more cases you study the more places you go you're constantly reanalyzing the way you approach it but i think the difference in where I started a long time ago and now is that I'm certain that everybody who reports these things hasn't necessarily seen a cryptid. Um, you know, at face value, you read everything online, you go, well, it, every one of these, they saw the cryptid. Some of them are ambiguous, and I don't think that, you know, every report is. I mean, it could be genuine in the, in the fact that the person believed they saw something, but I don't I think a lot of times it could be the perspective and the place and the time and what they have on their mind so that the reports and the sightings aren't as crazy widespread as people tend to believe. However, there is a number of these that is completely legit. The person has seen something that we just cannot explain in rational terms. And I still think there's something to this, and it could be a physical creature or what have you in these cases enough to make it worthy of, you know, continued research and writing about it, even though ultimately I, I think the stories are fascinating unto themselves. But you know, I think that's my perspective. is I just don't take everything at face value, just, oh, well, there's, I, I want to look more into it. I would like to talk to the witness. And when I do talk to the witness, I, that's when I re- get a really better feel about whether they really did see something that we would classify as a cryptid.
2: What is the strangest or most frightening thing that you've heard or uncovered? And Also, do you have, have you had any personal experiences or any encounters with anything that
0: you can't personally explain? I'm trying to think the weirdest. There's, there's just weird stuff. I mean, (laughs) it's all weird. Yeah. Spooky and freaking me out ones. There, there's a few of those. One of them was a case in Texas back a little bit preceding the 1980s Lizardman case. People saw something of a similar nature in this town late one evening at came from some railroad tracks and was walking almost right through a neighborhood and a whole group of kids and a few adults saw it and described it as being kind of a reptilian type creature. And they ran in and called 911. And I've talked to the 911 dispatcher that took the call. And he said, these people were freaked and they saw something walk right through their neighborhood and their mind wasn't a human and was somewhat reptilian. And they sent up one police officer out there who kind of followed the trail up to some abandoned building. And he was so scared he would not go in it by himself. You know, he didn't send him a backup because I'm sure the police thought it was stupid, you know, or whatever. But after having looked into that, I always thought, yeah, I have some freaky stuff. This thing just walks right through a neighborhood. With that many witnesses and provokes a nine one one call, of which I was able to talk to that person, it it really stands out to me as one of the weirder ones, I guess. That was the eighties. Yeah, that was in um, nineteen eighty six, I believe. Okay. I wish I would have known about that when I wrote my lizard man book because it's not in there, but it's very well related. And but that's always the case when you know, as soon as I come out with a book, hey, my book's out today. Mm. Oh yeah, you know, then somebody comes up, and goes, by the way, you know. <laughs> It's like we so caught the lizard man, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it never ends, or it's even weirder because the day literally, the day I released my Momo book, not one hour later after I posted it online that you can buy it now or whatever that weird business about that Momo thing on YouTube. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, no. What happened? Uh, there's a, a visual image to go with it. This scary looking thing with big eyes and a big mouth. And it was supposedly embedded in children's shows on YouTube and would, would tell children to kill themselves.
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, I do know the story.
0: Yeah. It was called Momo. And I, I kid you not, within yeah. one hour of me going, hey, my great my great new book's out. You buy this. <laughs> yes. What in the world could the timing... I don't know if it helped or hurt me, but yeah. So that's just the nature of this. It's an, there's a never ending, ongoing, unfolding thing about, about any of these stories. But, um, yes. Personally, you know, I've never seen anything that I could definitively say was a cryptid. I have seen what I believe was a ghost when I was a senior in high school, oddly enough. So I've seen a ghost. So maybe I've solved that mystery and I'm on to the others. But I was in a, cemetery once when i was younger in the dark i was kind of into ghost stuff like way way before it was ever even on tv but there was something at the back of that cemetery just beyond this chain link fence that i could not see but it i want to say it growled at me but it was not the growl of a dog and it wasn't the grunt of a bear it was this i don't know what it was but it scared me to death and i fled from the cemetery with my girlfriend and we got in the car and left I don't know what was in those woods standing there in those trees, but there was nothing I've ever encountered. So that was just something weird. Wow. You know, there's been howls and we were possibly stalked by something that was howling at us in, in the Boggy Creek area, myself and a fellow researcher once. And perhaps that was the closest I've been to one of these creatures, if they do indeed exist.
2: Well, uh, Lyle, I just wanna I really wanna thank you for coming on. It's been great having you on the show. We hopefully we can have you back in the future. Reach out to us anytime you got a new book coming out. I know we'll be in touch with Seth, of course, about his films too that you're right. involved in. And it's been great talking to you. Yeah, sounds good. I enjoyed it. <laughs> That's going to wrap up our show with cryptozoologist, author, musician, and actor, Lyle Blackburn. Be sure and check out his books on Amazon or with the links in the show notes to this episode. You can also visit his website, lyleblackburn.com. We'll be back next week with a new show on a mass
1: murderer known as the Blood Countess. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin.
2: Hi, I'm Sheila Mead. K R. I S galaxy Galaxy wide wide in perpetuity. perpetuity. Hope these are okay. Our show is edited by
1: Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullum. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com/astonishinglegends where
2: patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.